what I'm doing now and what I'm offering are the lessons from all of the failures and a few of the successes, but mainly from the failures that I've had in being out there and doing things, if that makes sense. And it's learning from those difficult situations. That's the core of, of the learning. That's the, that's the core of what makes me who I am. I've started a new series in Unchange where I speak to some of the amazing people I'm meeting and will most likely continue to meet as part of my executive MBA, which I'm currently doing through the University of Cape Town's Graduate Business School. In this episode, I speak to Chris Breen. Throughout his life, Chris has been a passionate explorer of life, learning and teaching. His experience of the political struggle in schools in the Western Cape in the 1980s initiated him into a quest to develop a methodology that focused on facilitating personal and societal transformation. After many years as a university mathematics educator, he changed direction 12 years ago. He now focuses on designing and running corporate programs on the topic of personal leadership in complex times. Chris has a unique teaching style, which I only realized after that first course is deliberately crafted to teach executives who may have become a little big for their shoes to behave like human beings and not like spoiled children. I've been fascinated with how different Chris is in his teaching methods and he has had a huge impact on how I look at the world. Today we talk about Chris's life, the transformations he has seen in himself and others and some of the concepts he teaches in his course. We actually had a terrible internet connection for this conversation. So when Chris refers to technology challenges at the end of this episode, know that this conversation was saved by Squadcast and expert editing. The song you hear at the end of this podcast is by Chris's son, Duncan Breen. Have you ever gone through change in your personal life or at work and thought to yourself, there must be a better way to do this? Welcome to On Change, the podcast that explores change that works and the people who make it happen. And now from Solid Gold Studios, here's your host, Pietro Dupisani. Good afternoon, Chris. It's so nice to have you sort of in the virtual studio with me this afternoon. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Looking forward to our talk and conversation. It's nice to see you again, even if it's virtual. I always like to start my conversations with your story. Tell me about your life when you were growing up. Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? I always pay attention to context. And it so happens that my mother died about four or five days ago, long journey with Alzheimer's. And we got together as a family on Skype, and we've, we're very far apart geographically. And I realized the importance of history and where one's come from also plays in life. So when you say you want to talk and have a conversation about change, my mother was 10 when the Second World War started and was immediately shipped off out of London with strangers, bombing in London, had a friend killed with a bomb, Walking when she was walking next to her, lost her boyfriend, got married at 18 to a man 20 years older than her who'd been born Cockney working class, had taken elocution lessons to, to change his language, had been in the war in minesweeping, 
and then started as an office boy in a company in South Africa. And then when they got married, moved to South Africa. And my mother had me at the very next year at 19. So I was born into to very determined parents, full of change in their life, dramatic change. And so that's me coming into the world and in a sense having a a reaction to all of their stuff, which was that I was born as an asthmatic. So so again, lots of struggle to breathe, lots of struggle to survive. And in fact, a primary school was pulled out of the swimming pool, supposedly dead, um, having gone in the deep end when I couldn't swim. But fortunately, I recovered. Fortunately for some, maybe not for current students. Yeah, so, so that asthma also, I had a talent in running. But I was in an all-boys school, and of course, my father, having come from his background, wanted us to go to the best schools, even if we didn't fit in. So I grew up in Cape Town, went to all-boys, private schools, could do sport, win the Victorodorum at primary school, then struggle to breathe for a long time, be sick for a long time, jump to class because I was supposedly very competent and then kept back for three years <laughs> because I was too young. And so a whole mixture of survival and pushing really hard. Both my parents, especially my mother, whatever I did, the next thing was, what's next? How do you do better? A privileged background of confusion and always pushing always being pushed and always needing to do better and always ne take on new tasks. So in which year did you matriculate and then what did you do after that? So I think I matriculated somewhere around 1964. One of the things is that the asthma went and so part of what that asthma going was, I had been mocked at an all boys school for being too thin, not strong enough, too white, pale, because I was... I had to go inside all the time. And so something that happened was I started taking on the most difficult things. So I pushed at my maths ability and came top of maths in the country, writing advanced maths, did athletics and became top in the country and, and took the hardest event hurdles. And so then with good career education, I, when I went to varsity at Cape Town University and studied the most difficult course in maths and science, because that's what I did for challenges. So I did chemical engineering. And of course, I was doing the most difficult event at in athletics in order to get back at the rugby players who mocked me. So I did 400 meter hurdles. And again, this thing of challenge and failure. I qualified for the Olympic Games in Mexico. I would have gone to run there, but about a week after I qualified, South Africa was thrown out. So you're asking me where I studied. Studied UCT, did chemical engineering, started studying a master's in physical chemistry, decided that was not very helpful. Had a, had a girlfriend who became came my wife who was a teacher so I thought okay I'll be going to teaching and, and get back at the maths and science teachers who were a problem and I became a maths and science teacher so I did a teacher's diploma at Stellenbosch University also so that I could become bilingual in English and Afrikaans. And then what happened after that? So there's a lot of story in between then and what you're doing now. Oh there's a huge huge story in between that. And, and the thing is that as you ask the question and as you ask me to come for this conversation, it's, it's such a temptation to put the story in a nice sequential 
format as though everything made sense at the time. There's a real funny way in, it, in which it all makes sense at the end, but it didn't at the time. So I became a maths teacher and because I wanted to push that bilingualism, I went straight in. I couldn't, I, I couldn't really speak Afrikaans fluently. So I went to an Afrikaans school to teach. Um, they didn't even interview me. They said, what's that blazer? Is that an athletics blazer you're wearing? Are you the Chris Breen the hurdler? You've got the post. So it was one of those situations. Um, so I taught maths and science at first Fuertreka Wood School and then Fishhook High School. And in between, I studied twice. I went to England and studied very quickly, studied a master's in teaching mathematics, which totally turned my whole world upside down as to what methodology of maths could be. Totally powerful experience. And then I, by the time I was leaving Fishhook, I went, I knew I wanted to go and lecture at UCT um, or lecture at a university at maths education. And I did a second master's at Cambridge University in research in maths education. What I'm interested in is what are the sort of key moments that made you change direction for you to land up exactly in this place at this point in time, teaching me the things that you've learned in your life? And I suppose that everything that's happened has been part of it. And so battling with asthma, making sense, trying, striving for, always striving for more, always giving everything, and then being devastated by failure and becoming more and more engineering scientist and, and determined. So I started, got a job at UCT in about 84, immediately started a master's in teaching mathematics, all new programs, insisted on going out into the townships to understand what was going on in schools in the townships. And immediately in 1986, all the boycott and the troubles in the schools. I also started an NGO, appointed against my colleagues in the department's fellow lecturers' best advice. I appointed a political activist who was in my B.Ed. class to be to work for me at the NGO, he was immediately detained, tortured. And so my induction into the political realities in the school happened and I became very involved in supporting students and teachers in the schools, which pushed me into trying to make a difference in the lecture room and very quickly, I learned that by doing that by rational research, lecturing didn't help at all because the left-wingers loved what I was saying, viva comrade, viva, and enjoyed the, the theory, what, what I was offering. But the right-wingers just were saying bloody communist and that we don't want to listen to him. 1986 was a tumultuous year, both in the, in the political seen in the schools, but also for me, because the very next year I said, I've got to change my teaching methodology. And I'm going to devote myself to finding, researching my own practice, first person, second person research to what is it to teach for transformation? How do I get maths teachers to 
recognize the intelligence of the people in their class, even if that intelligence is very different. Because the thing that I found out, whether you were left-wing or right-wing, most of the people, most of the teachers in their student teaching anyway, were fascists in the classroom. What they actually did was not aligned with what they said. And that started a whole long journey in lecturing, in making that that project that had one person in the townships in my spare time still being a full-time lecturer the ngo grew to having eight, a staff of 18 i was finding all the funding for it member of the radical maths education group i became a member of that went to england for a first conference on political dimensions in maths education and everything became focused on how do you teach differently so round about 2000 everything changed again i i went to one of these funny throwing the runes alternative fortune telling and i was and i got say yes to everything the runes have come down with lots of buffalo energy say yes to everything explore everything and boy oh boy did everything happen from there and i just kept saying yes and that stayed with me since then and while in that same year, while I accepted giving a talk at a Portuguese math teachers conference and doing PhD research seminar in New Zealand, I was awarded the University of Cape Town Distinguished Teacher Award. And I decided to have a party to thank prominent past students for what they'd taught me along the way. And one of the people invited was a guy who'd done, who'd done the teacher's diploma with me, Kurt April, and he is was then and still is a lecturer at, UC, at UCT's business school. And he said, what are you doing? And I'd just been to a workshop in England on complexity at work. And he said, but I'm teaching on that. Come and teach my MBA program with me. And I said, only if we can, I can sit in on the whole session and, and every single session. And I did that, and a week later, someone phoned me and said, Kurt can't teach on our leadership program, and he's recommended you as the best person. And I'd never taught the subject, but of course, I've got to say yes to everything. So I said, sure. And it was through that experience and getting more and more involved in the business school that I started teaching, and, started, and that's how I came to teach on the EMBA. What I realized after I'd done the very first course um, is that the way in which you teach is very deliberately crafted. It's not, it's, it's not just stuff that you do, you know, you're not just being crazy in front of the class. Um, you actually think about how the specific level of craziness that you want to present us with. And then we learn through that sort of um, style. So how did you come up with, with exactly that sort of teaching style? It's been 35 years in the making. So it's got a lot of background, a lot of writing, a lot of researching about it. And I became president of the International Maths Research Group and presented papers and, and gave workshops on it. I think the, emerg the urgency of transformation then, even more now, means that there's a very small window of opportunity to access people and to get people engaged. And one of the 
problems is that what I'm trying to access is people's internal worlds and bring about change in that, which I think is crucial to change how we are in the world, how we behave in the world. And so in that first session, especially, I've got to level the playing fields very quickly. I've got to put a framework around that stops people just ad hocing along, stops the alpha males, whether they're white or of color or male or gen or female. I've got to stop people thinking they can just speak when they want to, take the piss when they want to. Um, yeah, this is serious business. And I've got to somehow assert that authority externally. Once there's a control and people are, are cooperating and there aren't discordant voices and people trying to dominate and everybody's voice is equal, then what I, what I learned very quickly, and, and I finally found a theory to back it up, but that the only way we learn is from what the theory calls perturbation, being disturbed, having our core selves, our core structures disturbed so that we do our own thinking. And the, the beautiful thing that it says for the teacher is the teacher's job isn't to pay attention to the outcome. The teacher must spend all their energy disturbing the natural taken for granted assumptions either through what I do or through what I present or workshops or putting people to talk to other people. And that that disturbance then must be, must be harvested so people have a chance to make their own decisions about what they want to do. So I don't have a model of where I want people to get to, but I have a damn good idea about what I want them to think about. And that's what I do in my sessions. Try and create a disturbance for people to think, talk, reconsider, decide whether those taken for granted assumptions are still worthwhile or not. Well, as a recipient of your techniques, I think they are very effective and it definitely creates, what I like about it is it creates a sense of respect in the class. Um, so, and it creates a, um, and, and I like that. I mean, people are always punctual then and they they have conversations with respect and um, I thought I thought it worked really well in our class. So taking all of that into consideration, um, what are some of the biggest transformations you've seen um, as a result of the work that you do? There's a way in which the biggest transformations or the biggest joy for me are people making contact. So I had a book dropped off for me a couple of days ago where someone who was in a class 11 years ago was making contact He's having chemotherapy at the moment. His one of his daughters died after great struggle, and his wife had written a book about it. And he, out of nowhere, made contact with me again because that the learnings had helped. An earlier call this morning about someone wanting me to work at their company came from someone who did the EMBA ten years ago, and and it's that that personal side that people come back and they want to talk and those those small personal transformations are what give me the biggest thrill there's also there's also the activist part so some of the biggest transformations that are that are memorable to me when i was running that i had a three year term of office of president of this international research group the biggest in the world 
they had a very small understanding of what um, research and maths education could be because it was PME, which meant psychology, and that just meant cognitive psychology. So none of us, the papers that we were writing about politics and poverty and maths education were accepted. And in a memorable AGM as president in Australia, we got it overturned and, I, and I'd found a way just to put two extra words into the constitution and, and we got that and that changed everything. So papers could come from on, on all important topics and it immediately brought in many more people from Africa and the East into what had been a Europe and, and American dominated organization. So that's crucial. Yeah, so some structural things, getting starting a master's in teachers and getting teachers researching teaching being dismissed by my colleagues in education department and saying I was inflating their marks and then they got distinctions in, in theory, proper theory courses, write their proposal for their dissertations. The research committee rejects them because they're not filling in with what should be written. So there's there's something about transformation being structural for the benefits of society, for individuals, um, taking on the university, taking on different different unhelpful structures, forcing issues that's been really important to me. And some of those transformations are really, I'm really proud of because that makes lasting change. And then there's just the small ones of people and, and they're so big when people who manage to handle life-changing situations or life-threatening situations and come back and say that the skills that they learned helped them get through it. Do you think the work that you do transforms you? <laughs> If I tell you that the teaching that I do is purely as a result of the transformations of me, I think that all any teacher can do is offer themselves and offer their journey. And so all of the transformations that I've been through, the, the, the reasons that I understand, the reasons I can have empathy with different people, what they're going through is because that's what's given me the inspiration. I may not have gone through theirs, particular situation they're facing, but I have gone through enormously difficult situations. And the, and the way in which I've tackled them is always to jump straight in. So things like going, learning to dance, going on um, vision quests, uh, doing Tai Chi, things like that I've worked with. And then as you know, they start appearing in your classes. Definitely. And as a result of the class that I did with you at the beginning of the year, I started reading uh, James Hollis, the Living the Examined Life. And I just like to like read one line from it. So there's no greater difficulty may be found than living this journey as mindfully, as accountably as we can. But no greater task brings more dignity and purpose to our lives. So I think I, I, I read that one yesterday and it sort of really resonated with me as um, living that examined life. And at some point you have to get to that point where you're thinking about what you're doing and what your actions have in the real world. So, so what are you working on right now? I'm working hard, very hard on doing nothing and being comfortable in the disquiet of, of living in the, in the virus. 
and and I suppose to go further, it, it it's come together in a big way to in the last come together this week, because as the virus hit and the shutdown hit, then suddenly, of course, all the programs that I normally teach got cancelled. So I've got a nice open calendar, and and I saw so many of my colleagues in the field busy retooling themselves for Zoom teaching. And it just felt wrong. And and I had heard so many conversations about what we need to teach the EMBAs for them to lead successfully in this time of COVID-19. And I was thinking, I don't know what that means. So just interestingly, I've had two conversations with two different organizations and and we've just been exploring what's going on for you. What are you struggling with? What's happening? And in both of them, it's really weird. What emerged is that actually the starting point for anything now is not a leadership training anything. It's some sort of validation and affirmation of self that people need to have the space. It's that marriage to self. What they, need to, they need to be able to take time for themselves and, and talk about what fills them, fulfills them, what makes them excited. And if they're not doing anything to make themselves excited, then they have to be given work permission to find that time. And, and, and the people at the top have got to encourage them to take that time and make it a legitimate reason not to be overworking um, if they say, no, I'm taking this time. So it was really interesting. And that seemed to me like a fundamental starting point rather than how do we do things more efficiently? How do we grow our business? How do all of that stuff? It's not, it's not at the core at the moment. I'm finding I'm having a completely different experience because what's happening now is everybody's saying, don't waste the good crisis. So it's sort of like we've got this crisis and now we've been thrown into virtual working, which we would have been mo we would have moved into into the future anyway. So how can we leverage this to be even more effective and more efficient and more everything? And I think especially at the beginning of the crisis, um, I think a lot of people were feeling very overwhelmed by this thing happening. And there was just no time to just sit back and reflect and, and go, how can I use this time more effectively? It was more how can we still get stuff done, even though we can't get out to the places that we normally work to. Um, it wasn't It wasn't at all, this is now time for reflection and introspection and anything like that, but it might be because I work for quite a, a, a big corporate, so that might, that might just be why it's like that. And, and, and people really wanted to like prove that they could adapt to this change. And I, I can do this. I can work virtually. I can go on as if nothing has actually happened in my life, but in in real life, stuff's happened. The whole world is different. And I think we need to really take cognizance of that. Um, I wanted to talk to you. One of my, one of my topics was around the, the three marriages. So we might as well talk about that right now. So you, you introduced us to David White's three marriages at the beginning of the year. And it's around the marriage to your work, marriage to other, and marriage to yourself. And when I, when I discussed it with my, my partner, I said to him, yeah, we have these three marriages and I'm, I have to, 
I spend more time with myself and do that sort of thing. And he said to me, but you spend so much time with yourself. You go paragliding, you're studying, you're doing all sorts of things. And I'm not involved with that stuff. So um, I was wondering what your thoughts were on um, what does that marriage to self really, really mean? You know, is it is it the things that you spend your own time and energy on or is it the self-reflection piece? So what is it actually? And and are we supposed to be splitting our time into three so that we've got a third for work, a third for marriage to other, and a third to self? Is, it, is that even possible? So I'm laughing because that's exactly what why David White wrote the book and came up with the talk, which he actually did in Joburg when it first came out. The... the Ideas, he says, this balanced life is a load of rubbish. You can't live a balanced life. And so he talks about the three marriages being in constant conversation with each other. And so the idea is that you that now that you're doing your EMBA, that you contract that there will be, for this period, there will be less time spent here. But his point is that, and it and it's similar to James Hollis's having to listen to your soul, listen to if you in the second half of life, if you don't balance the inner and the outer, you're gonna waste your life. And so this marriage to self is listening to the inner self. And it was so funny, I was starting interviewing the people who were coming on a Deloitte program with me. And there was this white guy who said, no, I've got no problem with myself. I I do mountain biking and I break my record every time and I do this and I do that. And I just said, no, you're punishing your body. That's not, that's not marriage to self, that is self-masochism. So, so the marriage to self is the ability to be on your own in the woods, in nature, looking inwards. It's the ability to feel the grief of the poverty and the hunger that's around at the moment. It's the ability to stop and what Robert Bly calls shudder at what's going on in your life and in what's going on in others. It's standing still and breathing. So I don't know whether you do that. You probably spend a hell of a lot of time doing all sorts of other things, but you know it's that time that matters, and that's when when your partner asks, says, "No, you spend a lot of time on your own." That's not necessarily time that's in marriage to self. That's that's avoidance of self, probably. I think it's I think it's part of an attitude to life. There's there's a way in which we've become entitled, and that. And that entitlement means that we think life should be good and that we're failing when we don't get everything going perfectly according to our plans. And I think there's a re that's not helpful because then when things go wrong, there's an immediate panic and there's immediate self-loathing and there's immediately, I'm not good enough. What did I do wrong? Whose fault is it? And so much wasted time and energy. And I've been drawn again to a very pessimistic woman, Margaret Wheatley, who says the world's in such a bad state, it's in serial decline, and we just must live without hope and without fear. But there's something positive in that, that if we let go of hope and if we let go of fear and we just act in every situation according to our true selves, according to our essences, then we're going to be aligned with good to ourselves, to others, and to the world. And so Ruby's poem, The Guest House, 
is saying that life is not good. Life is full of challenges. Do not feel entitled. Do not waste time when things go wrong. Face up to it. And what can you learn? What happens? What does this give you? What What are you going to do with it? Yeah. So, so immediately after that call that the family had talking about my mother's death and honoring her, I went with my partner and we went and watched a movie. And when I tried to get up, I couldn't get up. My back had totally seized in my lower back. And I know how it had happened just in moving something small. Now I can curse and sob and why me? My mother's just died and now this and da 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 da. But it was like handle pain, handle death, pay attention to this and and use this time to think about your mother. Think about what your roots. Think about what's happened. Maybe it's time to start thinking about Chris Breen's departure. Do you do you want to talk about the guest house? So I like the guest house that, that, that everything's an opportunity to learn. Everything's an opportunity to be in the space. And I'm not saying everything's positive and good things will all come out. But, but it's for me a question of engaging with life and don't waste the time in bemoaning why is it, why is this happening to me? Um, there's that beautiful, story of the old woman and the old man of maybe yes everything that happens is it good or bad maybe yes maybe no we don't know and work with it um don't waste the energy on on bemoaning my fate but just engage so that's why i like the Rumi. yeah i, I like that it's one of my favorite poems actually i heard it at the end of a yoga class once um the the instructor just read it uh, while we were busy sort of just in savasana and as soon as I heard it, I went to her after the class and said, Where, who is that? Where did it come from? And, and can you share it with me? And it, it really resonated with me because it sort of told me that every hardship, everything that I faced to get to where I'm right now, uh, you have to learn from it. You have to move on and you have to take the teachings from it and just, just get on with your life uh, and not sort of bemoan them like you say. I just wanted to say that right at the beginning, you asked me about, you know, could, could I hurry up and get rid of my long story to get to where I am in teaching you on the EMBA? And, and, there's, and there's something there in what you've just said that triggers for me and or, that actually what I'm doing now and what I'm offering are the lessons from all of the failures um, and a few of the successes, but mainly from the failures that I've had in being out there and doing things, if that makes sense. And it's learning from those difficult situations. That's the core of, of the learning. That's the, that's the core of what makes me who I am. Yeah, it totally makes sense. It totally makes sense because all of those things, that's where you learn. You learn when you fail, not necessarily when you've done well. And if you can take that forward, then... Yeah, you, everything just works out better, I think. So what do you think are the most important questions one should ask yourself? It's really difficult to answer things like that because I, I so often say I'm busy, I've got enough trouble with my own life. Um, you must do what you need to do. But I think it's about alignment. And I like that Hollis thing of the alignment of inside and outside. Am I listening to my soul? Am I, am I standing in my integrity? Am I standing in my authenticity? And, and that's the place that I want to operate from. 
What I was going to say is that there's this wonderful guy, Stephen Jenkinson, who's got a couple of books out. He, he was involved in the what he calls the death trades. Um, but he, he helped people with, with grief walking. Working with grief is, an, is a natural process of dying and that we should embrace grief in our lives. But he also wrote something, a book on being an elder. And he's got this beautiful thing that, the, that an elder's job is to tell people about failure. Not about how to succeed, but how to deal with failure. That that life is not about a success story. Life is about dealing with failure. And I really like that. Yeah, I like that too. I'm going to go look for that book as well. What are the most important questions one should ask yourself on this journey called life? I have no idea what are important for other people. What I ask myself is about being true to myself and who am I in service to and what am I in service to and am I acting in alignment with my purpose in life? I think the questions that are important to me are um, how do I want to spend my time? Because I, I think the time is really, really valuable and you have to think about how you want to spend your time. And, and the second one is what type of person do I want to be? Uh, and so I ask my, my question, my, myself that question quite a lot. When I'm faced with a specific situation, I go, well, what type of person do I want to be and how am I going to react to that specific situation? That's really nice. Yeah, that's really nice. And I think, I think for me, the way you're phrasing it sounds as though you've got a choice. How do I want to be? And for me, there's something, it's, it's links, it links back to that beyond hope and fear stuff that I was that I mentioned earlier. But it's if I get rid of hope and fear in the situation and I'm not influenced by wanting a certain result or being scared of a different result, how would my true self operate in this situation? What is the only way there's only one way my true essence could act in this situation. And and it's about putting things aside rather than looking for. It's what's the noise? Shut the noise off. Yeah, I think, and I think there's so much noise. Yeah, if I just think about all the things that are happening in my life, but I think it's my it's my own fault as well because I say yes to everything. I don't ever know when to say no, and I think that, that creates a lot of noise. And I think if I could just be a little bit more discerning about what I take on, that would be very helpful to myself. That's maybe a lesson I still need to learn. Well, well, you see, it's it, for me. It's like, what is the payoff? What is the payoff for us when we take on all these extra things? And do we ever stop to see the cost of those, of that payoff? I had a, in, in the conversation earlier today, someone was talking about they didn't have much, get much sleep. And I said, why? And they started talking, telling me the reasons. And I said, no, why do you choose to have not much sleep? And then they went on with another reason. And I said, no, no. Why, what's, why is it in your interest to only have a little bit of sleep? And it's that, that's the core, because if we want more sleep, we should make the time to have it. There's no excuse for, for saying yes to too many things, actually. So how does, one, how does one stop and value what it is that you really value? Or maybe you actually value doing a lot and too much, and therefore it's okay and stop feeling guilty about it. I don't know if I'm making sense, but that's that that thing about 
that's that's for me at the core of that essence. What does my essence want? What do I really value? What do I want to be in service to? Is this helping me get there or hindering me get there? And that's why I like that whole concept by James Hollis where he says that your everything you you choose in life is it's a choice. You know, you can choose what you want to do, and it's the same thing with that person who didn't want to get enough sleep. You know, it's a, you're choosing not not to get enough sleep to do other things. So your whole life is a choice. And once you realize that it's sort of the power is in your own hands to make the choices, then I think everything changes after that. So in your line of work, who are your gurus? I mean, if I could set up a conversation with you, for you, with anybody, who would you like to speak to? Most, most of the time I want genuine people. I, I, I've gone sort of I went to France to a congress to go and see Edgar Morin, the French theorist on complexity. I went to go and see him. James Hillman, I did a workshop with him. So these are these are important people. One of the people who I admire enormously and who used to teach on programs for me is Tabo Mokheba, the Anglican Archbishop of Cape Town. So probably his, his thoughts on leadership and from a spiritual base are really, really beautiful. What excites you about the future? What are you looking forward to? What excites me about the future is that I'm realizing the importance of relationships even more. And so paying attention to those that I love and giving the time and prioritizing them as being more important than anything else excites me that will be able to do that. And I think that the other thing that excites me is we've got no flipping clue of where to go and how to do it. And that's very exciting because it's, it's forcing us to live in a far more considered way. And, and yeah, it's quite funny that you, you're the one who brought up the James Hollis book. Uh, I think it's forcing us to live our examined lives and then hopefully we've got the opportunity to start having examined societies, examined communities. We've got the chance of, of changing. And maybe that same thing, the first half, the second half of life where we align the inner and outer, maybe this is the chance for aligning different communities and different, aligning ourselves for what matters most, which is another one of his books, What Matters Most. Maybe we can align ourselves for what matters most. I'm hoping that that's going to happen and that would excite me enormously. It's it's not strange that I brought up the book. I mean, I'm, I've, depending on how you count it, I might be in the second half of my life. You don't you don't know. <laughs> so I think it's good it's good to have an examined life, no matter where you are in your life. It helps to think about things. Um, if there's sort of one message you could put out there that everybody should know and and be considering, what do you think that would be? Pay attention to what matters most to you, and really act from your true self without excuses, without procrastination. Act from that essence of who you are. You're unique. Act from that place. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Thanks so very much for making the time to speak to me. It's been technologically challenging, but we got through it. And I really appreciate the time that you made to have a conversation with me. Thank you. Thanks, Petra. And, and you know, it seems to me that when you're talking about change as your topic, it's almost essential for the technology to go wrong in order to check whether we can stay grounded, whether we can stay focused, whether we can keep a conversation going despite the noise. We had noise. 
And it's felt like you and I have kept connected through that noise. And I think that's the, that's exactly the challenge that that we've got in change and coping with change. How do we pay attention to what matters most? And it's you and your and my conversation that matters most in this moment. And so the technology is a distraction. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks for for battling through it with me. <laughs> I think we we um we made it in the end. So here we are. So thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Richard. Cheers. Bye. The guest house. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delights. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Rumi. Oh, grandfather, can you hear me now? As the wind blows across the sea, I have come back home to Africa to set you free, to set you free. Sad songs still linger. They set you free. They set you free. Within the silence of this dark cell, where once they held you down and they beat you like animals, tears of anger. Wash the ground I feel your fear Upon my neck As they load Our people in But your courage And your dignity Keep me strong Keep me strong
listening to another episode of Unchange. Thanks to Solid Gold Podcasts for making this episode possible. For more info on Chris Breen, you can find him at chrisbreen.net. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.